This is Judaism Unbound, episode 40, What Should Stay and What Should Go. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofus. And uh, just a note to our listeners that uh, normally we record these Lex and Dan analysis episodes a few weeks before we actually put them up. And that's true of this episode as well. So uh, the vast majority of this episode was recorded a few weeks ago as we were thinking about our last three conversations about Jewish and non-Jewish sensibilities. And we are leaving that section of today's episode intact. So we'll let you know when that part is about to start. But in light of the election, we thought we couldn't really not talk about it at least a little bit. Of course, we, like most Americans, are trying to wrap our minds around it in a variety of ways, uh, such a surprise. And, and so many things uh, were said uh, in the election by Donald Trump that I, I, I think have disturbed many of us. And it seems very difficult to go forward without addressing them a little bit, especially in terms of the fact that this section is about Jewish sensibilities. And it at least bears some consideration whether and how Jewish sensibilities ultimately lead Jews to think about the various issues going on in in our society uh, today and, and, and going forward. Um, I, I think it's important as we start this conversation to note that according to the various exit polls, it appears that uh, over 70% of Jews voted for Hillary Clinton in the election. And the only groups that I'm aware of that voted for Hillary Clinton in a larger majority than that are African Americans and LGBTQ people. That's uh, my understanding from, from looking at the news. And, and I think that we have to uh, understand what that means and, and unpack that. And uh, that's what we wanted to spend at least a few minutes today, sort of starting to think out and, and really eager to hear from our listeners on, on this. We're planning some conversation about this uh, close to Inauguration Day in January. And we're definitely planning on uh, going forward with our regularly scheduled episodes between now and then. We're really excited about uh, what's coming up, a whole unit on Hanukkah and uh, some really interesting stuff about funding the Jewish future. Um, but Lex, I, I wanted to talk today about just sort of a, a beginning point on this question of uh, Jewish sensibilities, uh, the election and the election's aftermath. Uh, it seems to me that the whole uh, situation is makes it a little bit actually more clear, right, what Jewish sensibilities means as a potential organizing principle for uh, disruptive approach to Judaism, because we are seeing that um, unaffiliated Jews, uh, probably a little bit more so than affiliated Jews, depending on how you cut it, some of the data, voted for Hillary Clinton in this overwhelming way, third out of any uh, minority group in America or any group in America that that's defined by pollsters. And I think that the whole idea of sensibilities, right, as I understand it, is that these are not things that we're looking up in a book or in a text, although they may be supported by books and texts. But it's really looking out at the Jews and saying, you know, who are these people? What is it that that are their values? And do our institutions, do our other organizations, does the way that we're thinking about Judaism accord with who these people are telling us they are as Jews? And the hypothesis would be if they do not, then 
that is a, a cause for concern in terms of, of Jews finding those organizations to be ones that they're going to give their, their connection to, their time to, their money to, their loyalty to. Right. I, I think that's exactly right. And I think what this election cycle, or not cycle, what this aftermath of the election has reflected in the Jewish world really is a, a picture of what we've been talking about for a while, about the real difference between what we think of as the quote-unquote Jewish community, the, the institutional Jewish community, and the vast population of American Jews. And I don't think that's because our Jewish institutions are in love with Donald Trump in, in contrast to what you just mentioned about Hillary Clinton voters being the vast majority of American Jews. But I do think that there is a common need that many, many American Jews have right now, not only to sort of think intellectually about this election and brainstorm ideas for the future, but to feel deep emotion and and to do so in a Jewish way and, and to hold a, a bigger sense of whether it's anger or disappointment or outrage um, – to hold that, and I and I think that institutions, it's it's not that they oppose that, but the way that we've structured our communities, they're not quite so able to meet that need. That really is a common one, um, because of of a need to be neutral on on many political questions, and and I think that this is making me wonder whether we have just a gap in the Jewish world f- for a nationwide presence or even strong regional presences of of expressing strong political opinions through a Jewish lens. I think we have so many Jewish nonprofits who who aren't geared towards politicking and advocacy work. And and there are Jews who who are starving for it and even starving for it through a Jewish lens that I think are struggling to find it. And it's another point on that ongoing timeline for people of disillusionment with their Jewish community because they feel not served in a time where they would like to be. So I want to get into this question of the institutional response. But before we get into that, I want to first see if we can sort of fully surface the sensibility that we're talking about. Because uh, earlier in in our series, we talked, I talked a number of times about Bernie Sanders as some kind of exemplar of a different Judaism that is nascent, that is emergent in this world of the unaffiliated Jews, or in, and maybe represents a lot of the point of view, the Jewish point of view of a number of the um, affiliated Jews. And here, I'm not talking about Bernie Sanders' whole political agenda per se. I'm, uh, not at all. I, I think Bernie Sanders is, is probably uh, not uh, politically in accord with a lot of people who nevertheless accept a particular sensibility that he articulated as a Jewish sensibility. And I want to bring it out, which is that uh, when Bernie Sanders was asked about the nature of his Judaism, his answer was basically something like, my family was killed in the Holocaust. And I learned from that, that politics is a serious business and that we have to understand that there's a moral dimension of politics, that it's not just a game, that it's really about making the world better for vulnerable people. That's basically my understanding of Bernie Sanders articulating his Judaism and and articulating the Jewish sensibility that his Judaism is built out of. Now, I heard that sensibility 
basically articulated in a different way by Lee Moore in our interview of her, uh, where she talked about this sensibility called Gerim Hayitem, You Are Strangers. And um, I want to look just at the textual basis for that, because I want to make clear, Bernie Sanders is not giving a textual basis. Bernie Sanders is giving a historical basis for that sensibility and not an ancient one, right? He's giving a, a relatively modern a historical uh, basis for it. Although I think that the way that he interprets that historical event, the Holocaust, is very much in line with the way that Jews have interpreted other calamities that we faced over the time, whether that was the Spanish Inquisition or the destruction of the Second Temple, the destruction of the First Temple, all the way back to the great mythic trauma of Jewish history, right, which is the slavery in Egypt. And that's where we have the textual basis, the the initial textual basis. And, and there are really two verses from the Bible that I think are particularly uh, clear about this. I mean, there, there are many, uh, but one is Exodus uh, chapter 22, verse 21, which uh, is... Um, the, the the verse says, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner or a stranger for you were foreigners in Egypt. Gerim Hayitem means you were foreigners or you were strangers. Or uh, actually, Shai Held uh, interprets the word ger, uh, which does have a root uh, from gar or to live or to sojourn. So um, Shai Held uh, interprets the, the or translates the word ger as immigrant. So another way of reading this verse would be, do not mistreat or oppress an immigrant for you were immigrants in Egypt. And uh, a very similar verse from Leviticus, which basically carries uh, the same idea, but again, in a little bit of a different way. The ger, the foreigner, the immigrant residing among you, this is Leviticus 19.34, the immigrant residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were gerim, you were foreigners, immigrants in Egypt. So, those are the, the sort of core texts from the Torah that this whole sensibility, I think, initially grows out of. But it's been an extremely strong sensibility for so much of, of Jewish history, this idea that we experienced a trauma and therefore we have a sacred obligation to make sure that no one else should experience such a trauma and certainly not at our hands. right? And, um, and I think that the other piece of this, which at least in my experience in the Jewish community over the last decades that grows directly from the Holocaust is this poem that I think pretty much every Jew, uh, regardless of um, affiliation, has heard in some way, which was actually not written by a Jew, but by a Protestant pastor, Martin Niemöller, after the Holocaust, where he said, um, first they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard that poem in one way or another talked about within the Jewish community um, to both understand that part of the reason why why we were victims in the Holocaust was because nobody spoke for us, and that also some of the people who didn't speak for us 
were later victims themselves. And so we learned something from that. Is that only that we should speak up for ourselves, that we should act for ourselves in self-defense? Sure, that that may be part of it. But it seems to me like the deep, uh, deeply ingrained Jewish uh, takeaway from this, in America at least, has been this is why we are so actively involved as Jews in the civil rights movement and all sorts of other social justice movements in America, not only because this is a value that we have as a moral principle, but because we have had both ancient and modern experiences where that was not done for us and we suffered. And so therefore, we have a holy obligation to do that for others. And I think that that sensibility is so deeply ingrained in so many Jews that I would, I would, I would, put out the hypothesis that any Jewish organization that is interpreted as not fully embodying that sensibility is a Jewish organization that will not be able to hold the loyalty of the vast majority of American Jews, no matter what their that organization's excuse or reason is for acting in a way that is um, not in accord with that sensibility. And now let's get into the the, the institutional uh, issue that I think you were raising, which is uh, the question of the, the large Jewish organizations that are identified with the Jewish community in America, having perhaps not spoken out uh, clearly against Donald Trump uh, and the people working with him, and maybe their failure to speak out against him and the people working with him after the election, where you could at least um, not really be able to make the claim as strongly after the election that there might be some kind of legal problem in speaking out because uh, nonprofit organizations are not allowed to speak out about a, a political campaign. But after the campaign is over, there would seem to be not that same uh, barrier. And nevertheless, there seems to be, with with some exceptions, such as uh, Ben the Ark and the Anti-Defamation League, there seems to be not a lot of uh, speaking out uh, definitively against uh, Donald Trump and his uh, uh, aide, Steve Bannon, and the various uh, Groups that um, that those uh, that those folks, particularly Steve Bannon, have uh, been been in leadership positions uh, with. We do know that there have certainly been certain things in the campaign that were said uh, in terms of of policies um, uh, and and positions about people, um, so such as that, that we should ban all Muslims from uh, coming to the United States until uh, we can figure out what the hell is going on, and uh, various other kinds of um, statements, broad brush statements about minority groups. And so, you know, I, I think that there are a lot of Jews, I've certainly been talking to them, uh, affiliated and unaffiliated, right, who who absolutely feel in a very strong way that that, that these uh, statements, these policies do not, not only do not accord with their understanding of what Judaism is all about, but are, are uh, intolerable, given that um, perspective of Judaism that they hold, and and nevertheless, and 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 so so I'm hearing a lot of shock and um, upset that many large and small Jewish organizations have not given full throated condemnation 
to those statements, to those ideas, and to the people that are espousing them who uh, have now been elected to high office in the United States. And the question is why? Uh, why are why are they not? Uh, and I've also been in uh, context recently where I've heard some discussion about why. And th- those discussions range from concerns about nonprofit status uh, being maintained if organizations do speak out. Uh, there's also a, a concern that, um, well, these folks have been elected to these powerful offices and, you know, we we'd better... Uh, make sure that we have some degree of friendly relations with them because they're now very powerful and we don't want to put the Jewish community in some position of being on their bad side. Um, and so let's see, let's give them a chance. Let's, let's, you know, do our best. Let's at least sort of protect ourselves. Uh, you know, and then there's the, the more outward looking sense that like, well, they've been elected. It's, it, it is what it is. We might not have, uh, been the people that we wanted. And it's not only about protecting the Jewish community. It's about like, look, like these are the people that are uh, going to be running America and we want America to be as good as it can be. And so let's try to keep ourselves in a position of influence. And the only way that we're going to keep ourselves in a position of influence is not to uh, overly antagonize them. And I guess what I would say analytically about that is even if all of that is true, I think that it's not going to be something that's going to be attractive to these many Jews that are feeling so strongly that these uh, ideas and actions are intolerable Jewishly, no matter what uh, reasoning a Jewish organization puts out as to why it's not giving a full-throated condemnation, um, I don't think that um, uh, people are going to be attracted to those organizations. Yeah, I I agree with that. And more than agreeing with that, I noticed an organization's Facebook page who typically, I mean, they're a national organization and they post things and they and they usually get one or two likes, not a particularly big Facebook presence. But there was a post after the election congratulating Donald Trump on his victory. And there were dozens and dozens of people who chose that little angry icon that Facebook has and all sorts of comments expressing expressing dismay. And what that shows me, it's less about the fact that people are upset at, at this particular instance. It's that the one time that American Jews are noticing this organization is when they're incredibly upset with it. And, and we could bemoan that fact. Or we could hold up a mirror for those of us who are working in Jewish institutions, as both of us are and, and as many others are, and we could say there there might be some some real concern here. And and we may need to recalibrate how how we understand our relationship with politics and and with Jewish constituents. Because I, I agree with you fully. I don't think that people are willing I, I don't think that people with strong moral convictions about this election are are going to be able to handle participation in institutions that maintain a sort of that, that maintain a sense of total neutrality. Yeah, and I guess I would I just add, I mean, I should have mentioned it earlier that, that of course, there's another reason why uh, certain large organizations are not going to give a full-throated condemnation is because some of their constituents don't agree and they might leave the organization. And, you know, it's totally understandable. You know, I want to I wanna make it clear that it's totally understandable and 
probably, uh, depending on how you define the goals of these larger organizations, it's probably the strategically uh, right thing to do from a short-term perspective. The, the the what we're trying to introduce, I think, in this in this show is uh, thinking about it from the long term perspective and, and thinking about it specifically from the perspective of, you know, it, it, when I say it's the right thing to do from a short term perspective, I mean, in terms of keeping the short term goals of those organizations going in the short term. But if we see the sort of longer trend of what this is all about is trying to, you know, whether you want to call it stemming the tide of, of, of disaffiliation, or uh, I put it in a much happier way, you know, creating something with gravitational attraction that could actually uh, become the exciting nucleus of a vibrant Judaism that can win the participation of so many of these uh, otherwise, uh, you know, currently unaffiliated Jews, it seems to me like that's not going to work. And, uh, you know, because it does not accord with the sensibilities of those Jews. And so whatever we want to say about the, the existing organizations, you know, they, they will do what they will do. Um, but I think that the, the question moving forward also becomes, is there an opportunity being, um, being exposed here for whether it's new organizations or, or organizations that are, you know, willing to sort of, uh, change their, change there um, such that they can really sort of win over w these folks. And, and, you know, we're seeing, I think, a highly charged uh, atmosphere. I don't think that highly charged atmosphere is going to go away over the next four years, over the next eight years, you know, and, and, and it's only probably going to harden. And so the question would be, are, is there room here for folks to come in uh, with Jewish organizations that can really uh, speak to that and that really say, hey, we're an organization that is about the sensibility that is currently the main sensibility driving you in your lives. And you said something uh, before we went on the show that I think was really important and interesting, which is that if if it turns out that there's some kind of legal issue there where such organizations might um, not be able to be 501c3 tax deductible uh, organizations uh, because of uh, various rules and regulations, that maybe uh, they'll have to make a difficult decision as to uh, whether to stay uh, nonprofit organizations, uh, you know, according to the tax law. They don't have to make a big profit. They can still pay themselves moderate salaries and whatever. All it really means is that they have some more, probably more complex uh, tax forms to, to submit. And it means that people will not be able to get a tax write-off for, for their donations to those organizations. But, um, you know, it, it seems that, that maybe, you know, in a certain political atmosphere, it, it may be better off for an organization to say, hey, you know, we're not going to be a um, nonprofit organization because we we don't want to be restricted in our ability to speak that way. You know, maybe more of Jewish activity shifts to the realm of non-corporations altogether into families, into uh, homes, into self-organized groups that are not formal organizations because they're completely unrestricted in, in what they can say and, and not say. And, you know, to the extent that some of the larger organizations are um, uh, censoring themselves in terms of, you know, what their leadership might really want to be able to say, right, because they understand themselves to have a larger obligation to the whole Jewish community, you know, Yes, uh, but maybe the Jewish community will end up voting and saying, but we don't want to be represented that way. And thank you, but no thanks. And rather than expressing their voice within, because I don't think it's probably going to be all that effective, those organizations seem to me to be under leadership that thinks that this is the right way to go forward. 
my guess would be that there'll be a lot of voting by exit. And and that's, uh, I would be very frightened, uh, you know, on a lot of levels if I were running an, an existing large Jewish organization, because I think that, you know, in a Jewish time, when those organizations are, are very concerned about voting by exit, I think we're now entering into a political territory that is almost forcing them in a certain way to, to um, take a moderate position and that is in a way forcing their constituents to take a non-moderate position and uh and I and I would be very worried uh from their perspective that this is going to accelerate the disaffiliation of American Jews from large existing organizations and then the question in my mind and this is the question that our show is about is is will some will folks stand up will there be ways in which um uh, those people won't just be drifting away from Judaism, but rather there'll be a, a new world of Jewish organizations uh, built around th- those sensibilities and, and others that uh, really has an opportunity now to to get going in a way that, that perhaps in a more moderate political time might have been a little harder. Yeah, that's totally right. And I think it's a, it's a nice closing note. And what I would say is if you feel that gap in your local community, in in your regional community, whatever it might be, and you are frustrated at the absence of of a voice in the aftermath of this election, more now than ever is a time to think about what it would look like to start one and yeah. and to find people near you that, that share those concerns. Whether you are the most educated Jew or the least educated Jew or the most affiliated or the least affiliated or, or whatever it might be, um, I feel comfortable spouting out. So there are thousands of Jews that desire a space to express deep, passionate emotion right now from a Jewish lens about this election. I do think that that that's the order of magnitude we're talking about. And if local institutions are able to provide that, that's awesome. And and we should seek those out. And if they're not, it it's a time that that acceleration of non-organizational or small organizational kinds of work could be really important. Yeah. And just to bring people back to, I think it was episode four, where we talked about um, Albert Hirschman's exit voice and loyalty, that um, what we're going to see potentially is we're going to see dissent being expressed through exit, right? People are going to be exiting Jewish organizations that, that they feel are not standing up for their values. And, you know, two different things could happen. One is that they can create new organizations, new expressions. Uh, and the other is that the existing organizations are going to say, yeah, look, we're, we're, we're stuck here. You know, on the one hand, we think that there's a certain thing that we should be doing, uh, you know, in terms of our analysis of the best thing that we could be doing to protect our interests. And on the other hand, all of our constituents are, are leaving. So that's a way of putting pressure that, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see if that happens. And if that has a result, um, you know, it's, it's not easy. It's not, it's not easy uh, in either way, but, you know, it's never been easy. So I think that um, we're going to kind of leave it at that on the uh, election aftermath. And we're going to go into our, uh, what we had recorded before, just looking at the, our, um, uh, shows on Jewish sen- and non-Jewish sensibilities. We think that's still very interesting. And we're glad that you're going to stick with us a little bit longer today than we usually go. And uh, we will definitely uh, return to this subject soon. So with that, what's about to come next is our previously recorded section. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. 
And I'm Lex Rofus. And uh, at the top of the show today, as we always do in our uh, Dan and Lex analysis episodes, we just wanted to remind you, our listeners, uh, and thank you in advance for supporting our work at Judaism Unbound by making a small donation. A great way to do that is a small monthly donation through Patreon, which is a great website that allows creators like us to try to assemble a lot of small gifts from our many listeners and in that way keep ourselves going simply with with very small contributions and we love that idea so much uh, and we're trying to make it work so we would really hope that if you're enjoying our show you will head over actually you can get there through a link on our website just go to www.judaismunbound.com donate and that gives you all kinds of options for ways that you can support us. We are so grateful to those who've already supported us, and we thank you in advance for being willing to support us going forward. Also just wanted to mention that there's another way that you could help us out a lot. If you head over to iTunes and give us a five-star review and even write a review for us, that really helps new people find the podcast. And we think that the 50 or so people who've already done that have really helped the thousands of people who have found our podcast find it. And if more of you would be willing to do that, I think we'll be even able to find more listeners. So I think that um, as we kind of go into the analysis about Jewish sensibilities and non-Jewish sensibilities, which we've been talking about over the last three weeks, for me, the real question that we're trying to get at here, that we're starting to get at, is something that, that we've been thinking about throughout the entire time of this podcast, but wanted to focus for a while first on on processes of change. And we're going to continue talking about processes of change, but we're also starting to bring in the substance of the change. And, and and I think that a lot of today's discussion is going to focus on our thinking about what the substance of a Jewish remix might include, uh, right? And, and, and I guess that's where I wanted to start. I mean, we've talked a lot about how the change will occur. Will it be disruptive? Will it be evolutionary? Um, but if we're talking about a Judaism, I mean, in my mind, I, I guess as a starting point, I'm saying, like, I, I think that the Judaism in a hundred years from now will be very, very different from the Judaism of today. So much, you know, very much like rabbinic Judaism was from Second Temple Judaism. And the question, in a way, is: Can we predict what Jewish material will still be an important part of that Judaism in a hundred years? And you know, if we have a reason for thinking that way, then could we start to build it today? Right? Could we start to work on that? that material today. And just quickly, when we look back at history, I, I think that when we think about what is included in rabbinic Judaism that could have been predicted in the Second Temple period, at least two things come to mind. And I'm wondering if there are other pieces, Lex, that come to your mind that are different from Second Temple Judaism, but that were elements that existed at the time of Second Temple Judaism. And, and, and one is the prayers, which largely come from the Psalms, and the Psalms were sort of the soundtrack of the temple, the background music of the temple. The The Levites would be uh, sort of a chorus singing these Psalms, and once the sacrifices ended, there was kind of like, okay, but let's keep the background music. You know, just because the temple's destroyed, we can't do sacrifices anymore under this belief system where the sacrifices can only be done in Jerusalem. But there was nothing in our belief system that said that the singing could only happen in Jerusalem. So we can make that portable. And in fact, singing is portable. That's one thing that strikes me. And another is the wisdom literature 
which we don't tend to talk about that much, but there is a, a part of the literature of the Bible that comes from an ancient Middle Eastern school, essentially, of wisdom literature that was not only among the Israelites, uh, but that was widespread. And But in terms of the Israelite uh, books, you know, the book of Proverbs is an example, um, the book of Ecclesiastes, and some of the other books in that genre, Job, uh, that are kind of considered wisdom literature. And um, the idea is that, yeah, these are not the laws and the commandments. These are just kind of good ideas from wise people. And it's much more complex than that, I know. But uh, And and when we think about rabbinic Judaism, it, it seems in a way like wisdom literature becomes becomes the centerpiece of rabbinic Judaism. It's kind of an expansion of wisdom saying, okay, let's build a new system out of wisdom. And it really um, puts some of the commandments and and certainly some of the biblical stories in kind of a background role. To, to And I think that's at least one way to understand that transition. And before we sort of talk about today, I'm wondering if, uh, you know, what are, are there any other things that I'm leaving out that, that you think kind of, um, you know, for, for the sake of the historical analogy, we should be thinking about? No, I think that's I think that's about right. But what I mean, one ultra specific example, but that I only recently learned about and thought was interesting was so you you talked about how we transitioned largely using Psalms into this new mode of this new modality of prayer that had existed in small ways before, but certainly wasn't central. And one thing I'd never thought about was sort of, okay, what are the actual words of of the prayers and, and why should they matter? And you know, we take for granted, even a lot of non-Jews know the phrase Baruch Adonai. Like, I mean, it's referenced in pop culture and all over the place. And what I didn't know is that Baruch Adonai, it actually was a phrase that, it, so it existed, I think it was mentioned twice in the whole Hebrew Bible. So this phrase is a perfect example of, it was very much in, I mean, forget just the background. I mean, the, the Levites singing the Psalms were at least, you know, a a primary part, even if they weren't the central sacrifice. Like, this is an example of this tertiary sidebar statement of Baruch Atadonai that's used, you know, a couple times in the whole Hebrew Bible that people came along and said, oh, this is kind of a useful idea. We'll grab that and make it sort of the mantra of of Jewish worship, which, you know, it became. We take for granted that that phrase sort of if you wanted to connote Judaism to someone in three words, you could do that with Baruch Atadonai. And if you had said it to somebody in, you know, the first century BCE or second century BCE, they might not have ever known what you were talking about. Right. So I think that with that kind of um, historical lens, we can start looking at our time. And, and I think that this idea of the Jewish sensibilities, which is not the invention of the Lippmann Camphor Foundation. As far as I understand it, it was really coined by Vanessa Oakes, one of our earliest guests, in an article that she wrote in Shema magazine in 2003. And essentially, my read, and again, this is, we're now interpreting a text here, but, you know, my read of, of what she was trying to say there was a version of, look, if things are changing a lot, let's kind of look around and see what are parts of Judaism that really are thriving among the people that we sort of see as disconnected from the old way. And if you look at it in terms of the old way, then you'll say, oh, we should count how often they light candles and those kind of demographic type of 
studies that are done that count these kind of old forms of Jewish activity. Do you are you a member of a synagogue? Do you give to the Federation? Do you light Shabbat candles? Um, and if and on those measures, it looks like people are not participating in Judaism. But if we look around, it's not only that they answer the Pew study that they're proud to be Jewish, but we also see these ways that they're living their life that are profoundly built on Jewish, and she called it sensibilities. And um, just to I'll list them from her article, she she put out 10 ideas. One was that uh, they make distinctions uh, in, in, in the world. Right? Judaism is about saying this time is this and this time is that, or this thing is, is sacred and this thing is not. Right? And that, that, that idea of, of making distinctions is, is a Jewish sensibility. She also talked about um, honor. Uh, she talked about uh, turning, self-improvement. She called it tshuva. Um, right? The idea of dignity being created in the image of God, um, saving life being a primary uh, a primary value. She talked about being a really good person, a mensch, as a primary Jewish value, which I think is really interesting in a sense because uh, a mensch is it's a Yiddish word, and um, you know it doesn't come from any uh, Jewish uh, traditional source. It's an idea that that it it sort of uh, evolved over time as this uh, value to Jews, the idea of being a mensch, um, and and so in a way that's a really good example of something that doesn't necessarily have a textual source, right? Uh, she also talked about keeping the peace, repairing the world maintaining hope in the face of adversity and remembering ancestors. Those were kind of her sensibilities. And she said, those are things that, that um, a lot of Jews do who are not uh, institutionally affiliated. And, and that if we were thinking about rebuilding Judaism, maybe we could do worse than, than rebuilding it around those, those 10 ideas. I want to take a closer look at the way we're framing sensibilities, because what I want to make clear is, at least for me, I don't want to imply that all Jews as sort of like a racial construct have these sensibilities in them in a way more than others do. Like, I don't think that's what a Jewish sensibility means. No. And, um, and, and I don't think that's what you were saying either. I don't think that the idea here is that being a Jew necessarily predisposes you towards X. I think no, of course not. what I, right. Um, and, and what I think it, could mean and and is that like we have these sensibilities that are either explicitly like said in texts of ours or 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 implicitly alluded to by the way we've structured texts or others or the third and this is what you get to with mensch that aren't even quite text based but that have become part of the Jewish experience lived over time. And that's where, you know, that that's where a, a kind of outsider sensibility that is frequently talked about could come to light. It's not that our texts in, well, actually some of them did because they were reflecting on the times they lived in, but it's not that our texts say you should be an outsider, but we have this Jewish sensibility of, of marginality that has come to light through historical lived experiences. And even if we are not, say, marginalized in the same way today, we can still bring that sensibility, that approach to the way we exist in the world. And as an example, you know, reflect on other marginalized peoples. I guess in a way, one question is, is look at the Jews that are out there in the world that do say on the Pew study that being Jewish is important to them, that they're proud to be Jewish, which is most Jews, and ask yourself, are there ways in which they behave or they think that are different from your typical non-Jew. I mean, I guess that would be a place to start. And again, we're not talking racially, we're talking culturally. And I think it comes down to a theory of why be Jewish. 
because if we think that there's a reason to continue to have Judaism in the world, that might be the lens through which we can start to ask ourselves, what is the material that should be retained and what is the material that should not be retained? I'm trying to think in ancient times, you know, what what the answer would have been. I mean, I, I think that for some, it's God commanded it. Uh, for others, it might be that it, you know, for the kings, they might have said that we, you know, they might have said they understood that it served their political interests. Um, but I think that if we look at the majority of Jews today who would not say that the reason why they're Jewish is because God commanded it, then I strongly suspect that there are two driving reasons that they would say it's important to be Jewish. One is some version of backward looking, right? Which is saying that, um, you know, we want to retain what our ancestors were or, you know, because of anti-Semitism and the attempt to try to wipe out the Jews and therefore we can't give give that victory or write some version of a backward looking. Uh, we want to conserve something that uh, otherwise would be lost and that would be bad for a variety of reasons. I just don't think that that one is going to last for for very long. Um, I don't think it. I don't think it has teeth to to last from generation to generation for all that long, uh, barring some other kind of disaster. Um, and then the other, I think, is some version of I, I believe that being Jewish makes my life better, make or makes me a better person. And I think that at least for me, it's that. And and I'm not saying that it does. I'm saying that that I would hope that it it does. And I'm looking for a Judaism that would actually make my life better and allow me to live a better life in the world. Yeah, I I think that's a really important point. And for me, what it brings up is something that we haven't yet talked about this episode, but which we touched on a little bit with. Jay Michelson and Zach Lasker um, about non-Jewish sensibilities. And the reason I bring it up is because you're talking about how you want to channel these Jewish sensibilities in a way that can help you make the world better. And I, sh- I share that. I totally think that's great. But a question comes up, which is, okay, given that these are sort of Jewish sensibilities, does that mean that the process is that, you know, we as Jews connect to these particular Jewish sensibilities and then together with other Jews bring them into the world? Or is it that we create communities that actually don't focus just on Jews versus people who aren't Jewish, um, but instead focuses on channeling those sensibilities into the world, whether the people doing the channeling are Jewish or not. And I think both are really noble and valid, and there are examples of both. But I think it's an important question to consider which one might be most fruitful or how to balance them. Not only is it an interesting question to think about, I think it's a necessary question to think about and to figure out a way of addressing because I think that the intermixing of Jewish, whether it's sensibilities or material, you know, other kinds of material, the intermixing of Jewish and non-Jewish, or let's say extra Jewish um, material is absolutely inevitable. Um, It reminds me of when we talked a little bit about Right, the difference between inclusion and um, and something more dramatic than inclusion. But uh, I think this came up when we talked about women. It's like you could talk about inclusion of women, but as soon as you open the door to 
um, full inclusion of women, you're not only allowing women to participate in stuff that men invented, you're allowing the woman's voice to come in and change. And, and because it's a huge percent of the population, you know, half the population, you're inevitably going to get major changes that come from women's experiences beginning to be in the center of the community's experience and the community's redesign of the experience. So even if you're in, you know, and I, and I, I hesitate to say something like this because, you know, I, I hope it doesn't uh, raise any additional fears among, you know, conservative communities about inclusion. But the fact is, and we speak truth in this show, the reality is yeah, that, that right, the reality <laughs> is, is that if you are an Orthodox community, for example, and you become increasingly uh, open to women, I don't think that you're going to stay with the same approach to orthodoxy in 50 years from now. You know, you're going to have a, a very changed orthodoxy because women are now uh, not, you know, not only have a seat at the table, they are sitting at half the table. And that's where, you know, I want to sort of take this maybe back into this question of like, okay, let's talk about the Jewish material and the extra Jewish material that's going to be intermixed here. Maybe a good lens to look into this with, right, is a, um, you know, your typical non-religious Jew who is married to your typical non-religious non-Jew, right? What happens in their household? What are the Jewish elements that are likely to really be able to be alive in that household. And also we should talk about what are the non-Jewish elements that are likely to be alive in that household, such as, for example, I think a Christmas tree, right? Like I think that um, there are a lot of non-Jews who are not at all religious, who who love to have a Christmas tree in their house because it it's just sort of a, a memory and it's a symbol of the season in America. It's something that's common. It has nothing to do with Jesus. It has nothing to do with Christianity for these households, right? And the Jews that have them, you know, some of them turn out that they like it too. So it sort of seems to me like this non-religious Christmas tree is likely to be kind of a non-Jewish element that it ends up part of all this. And then in a way, the question is like, what are the Jewish elements that are that are going to kind of be exciting to people? Yeah, that that resonates with me in a big way. Um, the the Christmas tree piece is is so. First off, you said something interesting, which is you said. There are non-Jews for whom Christmas tree might bring up important family memories or meaning, etc. You didn't say Christians, which I think is accurate because as we know, a lot of people who are Christian, who are Buddhist, who are Hindu, my, my, one of my friends growing up is Hindu. I walked into his house and they had a Christmas tree and they were religious Hindus. They, like, But it's for them it, there was no problem there it's a fun symbol for the time of year and yeah as you said it was divorced from jesus certainly for them but even for many christians and for a long time by the way there were two parent jewish households that would have christmas trees because i think there was a time where it was seen as more secular than it is now i think you're you're really right there and i experienced it myself when me and my partner were talking about what our winter holidays were going to look like. And I was really just in my gut resistant to any sort any sort of Christmas tree wreath stuff. And and I had no I had no actual reason that I could articulate other than I felt like guilty about it or like others would be upset at me. And for for my partner this is an important symbol. Like like we both light candles together for Hanukkah. We do all these that like, I, I, I reached a point where I realized like, 
Absolutely. We'll have a Christmas. We had a wreath last year. We might have a tree this year. Who knows? I think that that conversation is vital. And when you ask the question of like, what are the Jewish parts? I think we we get so bogged down in, oh no, there's going to be other parts that uh-huh. aren't Jewish that we forget right. that there, there, there can be and certainly will be if we try Jewish parts. And what I would say on that front is I think we take for granted our calendar, like our Jewish calendar. And it's not all religions where people have this rhythm to their year. And I would say, to answer your question of what do Jews who are not particularly immersed in Judaism still get from Judaism, I think they get this rhythm to their year. I mean, we have Hanukkah, Passover, and the high holidays that even, for, I mean, it's it's shifting. You can look at different numbers for each, but a lot, a lot of people who are never walking in the synagogue still have that have those holidays on their consciousness at certain times of year. And they're spaced out enough that that creates this sort of rhythm. And, and there's also Shabbat on a weekly basis where, once again, Jews aren't, most of the people we're talking about aren't having a Shabbat experience, certainly not in a synagogue, but pro- maybe not at all on a weekly basis. But they they probably do have it on their consciousness on a, on a here and there kind of level, like the, and, and so maybe it's a Shabbat dinner with no blessings, but they're, they're having a Friday night dinner that, that serves that sort of purpose. Like, like Elisa Klein spoke about with one table. And I think that we, we should really own that and realize that we have this powerful methodology technology of, of creating sort of a, a rhythm to life that I think Judaism is good at. I think there are things that other religions are really good at that we struggle with, but like Judaism is actually really good at this rhythm thing. And so I look at, and like, and I look at how we've already started to do that. We, you know, we keep the timing of Passover or whatever, or the approximate timing, and then we make it social justice Seder or queer Seder or sports Seder, or like we do this already. We take the timing and then we, incorporate whatever, you know, stuff we're interested in to that timing. And I think that's actually a very powerful, useful idea and something we could carry with us in the future. Okay, I agree with that. So then the question is, what about content? What about, Jew- like, what makes that ultimately Jewish? And I guess I, I return to this question of, like, what difference does it make that it's Jewish, right? Me- meaning, like, if it was just, if we were just saying, hey, look, some of these Jewish elements are going to be retained. Um, actually, like, I think a Christmas tree is a good example on the flip side, because frankly, I don't think, you know, for somebody who's, let's say, Christian, who would say, look, Christianity is uh, going to go away as a religion, but Christmas trees will remain. I don't think that too many people would get too excited about that. In fact, I would say that if, um, if, if, if it's an element that um, the people that are highly committed to the old version of something would say, eh, it's no big deal that that's going to be retained, then um, I guess on the one hand, you could say, oh, that shows that it's got this sort of disruptive potential um, because they see it as a low quality thing, but it could turn into something better, you know, but another uh, potential is to say, well, that's not really, I guess, a, a particularly important part of that old system because the people don't care about it that much. Again, when we look at, you know, maybe the difference is when we look at the wisdom literature and the Levites songs from the old temple system, I think that, you know, maybe a temple Jew who would be told, hey, Judaism, uh, as we know it, is going away, but 
the Psalms will be retained and the wisdom literature will be retained, they might still say, oh, that's good. You know, that's good stuff, you know, right? And that does contain some of our good ideas. And so I guess my question is, what would happen? Let's say, let's say that a Passover Seder will be retained. You know, I look at that, I look at what you said and I said, yeah, I I agree. I, I think that people really like Passover seders and people really like lighting the Hanukkah candles. So my guess is that those things would be retained if we had a um, system that was facilitating people retaining them. Then the question is, could they now be infused with more meaning than they even have for people today in a way that people would be excited about? For example, that I think that one of the things people really, one of the reasons why people really like to retain the Passover seders because it's a kind of um, Thanksgiving in the spring right? It's a way to get family together for a second time during the year. But I don't know. I mean, don't really think that a lot of people are getting a ton out of the Seder itself. So maybe there would be a way to reboot the Seder um, in a way that would make it more meaningful and therefore kind of use the Seder as a vehicle for bringing forward some important sensibilities, you know, other Jewish sensibilities into people's lives whose vehicle has been broken. So let's say, for example, I guess a way of thinking about this would be like, let's assume just for the sake of this discussion, that the synagogue is is not part of the next Judaism in the same way that the temple wasn't part of the previous Judaism, you know, that 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 that, that the religious service of the synagogue is, is one of those things that just kind of doesn't make it. But then we say, well, what's really important that goes on in the synagogue that we would want to make sure didn't get lost? And could we somehow try to figure out how to put that into the Passover Seder and into the Hanukkah candle ceremony? Uh, because we've now found those to be a much more successful quote, delivery system or Friday night dinner, you know, that those are much more successful delivery technology. And what Jewish content could we now deliver through that technology rather than through the technology of prayer in the synagogue? So I look at the Passover Seder, I think it's exceptional. I mean, exceptional in the sense of very good, but also exceptional in the sense that it's different from the rest of our rituals and that I do think on some level, there are already a lot of people doing this kind of process that have maybe not explicitly, but implicitly recognized, you know, this this Seder isn't doing it for me. Um, therefore, we're going to do what we want to do with with some markers of, you know, quote unquote authenticity, but really it's going to be about the family gathering. It's going to be about joy with one another and we'll we'll keep the others to to facilitate that. I think that process is happening and I'm encouraged by that. But I want to return to something you alluded to at the beginning which was sort of you know mensch being interesting because it's not from the Hebrew language and it's just sort of an import and other of these concepts teshuva being from Hebrew. Like I I agree that we shouldn't need like these authenticity markers of Hebrew etc. Um, but part of me thinks that, you know, if we can, if, if all we need for people to experiment wildly with new forms of Jewish things, do all sorts of cool stuff and connect with more human beings and with the world better, if all we need to do that is keep some Hebrew phrases and like drop them in to make it feel like, oh, we're still sort of anchored in the past, I kind of think that's okay. Um, and the question is whether it actually works. And 
I think that's a person by person kind of thing. For some people, the la- that's just inherently alienating, even if it's in a small use. And for other people, calling it tikkun olam seder versus calling it justice seder makes it feel like it's real and and it counts. Yeah, I don't. I and I guess I wonder. Yeah, I don't. I don't really have a strong feeling about that question. I don't. I, I do. I guess you know. I, I think about tikkun olam as an interesting example because it means to repair the world, right? And uh, and it comes from this Kabbalistic Jewish spirituality, Jewish mysticism kind of notion th- that I think at the creation, right, God's light was broken into many shards and, uh, you know, there it has to be, the light has to be regathered. And there's whole like mystical foundation for this idea, which I think that probably nobody, you know, let's say in the reform movement who uses the term tikkun olam all the time to talk about social justice, would buy, you know, I, I think that they would not, but they've taken a, a term from that, that world and um, kind of used it to label social justice in a way that, that seems powerful to people because the idea of repairing the world, even it, though it's not repairing the world in the same way that it, it meant in its original formulation, feels kind of powerful. You know, the idea that the world is broken and we're repairing it from a justice standpoint. I mean, that makes me think of the, the for those who listen to our High Holiday episodes, I, I talked about Jonah and the whale um, and how it's actually not a whale in the text. It says a big fish. But my argument was that, you know, over time, linguistically, it was translated and it became a whale. And like, maybe now it is a whale. Um, and with Tikkun Olam, you know, I, I'm I'm somebody who myself has, you know, vigilantly gone out and said, no, 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 you, you're using Tikkun Olam in this simplified way that doesn't recognize the history of it. I mean, there's the Kabbalistic side. There's even in the Mishnah, Tikkun Olam is mentioned in, in another context. And I, I've been, you know, on my soapbox. No, like Tikkun Olam has this rich tradition and you're demeaning the term by just sort of using it in this ambiguous way. But maybe that's what it means. Like maybe tikkun olam is sort of a broad idea of repairing the world. And it's and it's become divorced enough, both from the Kabbalistic context and the Mishnah context, etc., that that's what it is. And then that gets at our big question from before. Like this is a micro example of the bigger question, like is X still Judaism? Like is this still tikkun olam? Well, I think it is. I think the the general push to repair the world is on some level what the concept from the Kabbalah was getting at. I'm comfortable with saying it's good that we have retained that. And I, I don't think that we've lost tikkun olam. Others might disagree with me. And I think that's where the interesting arguments happen. And, and on a macro level, if we lost a lot of what we currently think of as Judaism, would it still be Judaism simply because we called it such? That's a real question. Um, and my answer is yes, but it's hard. <laughs> By the way, there's a joke. I don't know if it's a joke or it's uh, maybe a true story that a reformed Jew once asked his rabbi, how do you say tikkun olam in Hebrew? <laughs> you know, that it's become such a term of art that everybody doesn't even realize that it's in Hebrew, right? That um, And, you know, and, and, and the I guess the question is, is that I think we, we talked earlier about language, there are a lot of people that talk about Judaism as a language. And um, it's interesting to think about that metaphor and whether there is an importance and to what extent there's an importance in having an inside language that, you know, maybe really what distinguishes Judaism from other things and maybe what distinguishes anything from other things that are similar to it 
is that it has this kind of insider language that allows the concepts to be manipulated in a particular way by the people who know that language. And, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting question about what happens. By the way, again, I think that the story of the revival of Hebrew and modern Hebrew is is an interesting metaphor because the fact is that um, a lot of people that that not a lot of people spoke Hebrew really since the time of the Babylonian exile. You know, really Hebrew was spoken by an elite um, and wasn't spoken. It was understood. It was read by an elite and the regular people had to have it translated for them. And now we have modern Hebrew spoken by the masses in Israel. And it is really, um, and it's a different language from from ancient Hebrew. Uh, so much so that I've heard recently that that a um, Hebrew translation of the Bible just came out, <laughs> right, in Israel, a modern Hebrew <laughs> translation of the Bible, because many modern Israelis can't understand the ancient Hebrew of the Bible. And um, so it really raises this question of, of um, you know, it may be that the existing language of Judaism is one that the masses of Jews can't understand, don't want to understand. It's it's too foreign to them in in so, so many ways. Um, we need to reboot the language. It'll also create an insider's language. It's just that there'll be a much larger group of insiders. You know, so so instead of having you know with ancient Hebrew, instead of having you know a few thousands, tens of thousands of people that really know it, we now have millions of people who know modern Hebrew, but we also have billions of people who don't, you know? So it's just that it's an expansion of, of the group, um, but it but it nevertheless will have this kind of insider quality to it because that's inevitable for any system that really works. So I guess that, that you know, as before we close, I want to come back to this question of the content though, because essentially I guess the question is, what are we going to retain and what are we going to import? Can we make predictions? Can we can we even make um, preference statements, you know, about what's going to be retained and why, right? So, like, I would say, for example, that I think that there seems to be, to me, broad agreement in liberal Jewish denominations that whether or not there really is a God, God is very different from the kind of uh, involved God that was imagined to be the certainly the God of the biblical period and the temple period, and even the time of the rabbinic period. And Yitz Greenberg has spoken very eloquently about this as a post-Holocaust phenomenon, but although I think it actually is very something that really started pre-Holocaust, you know, with the Enlightenment, but was this idea of a change in the nature of God, that God is just not very involved in the world in an active way. And it seems to me that um, a lot. There's a lot of broad agreement among the liberal movements, not so much the conservative movement, I guess, that therefore commandedness is not really something that we can have as a major component, as a major piece of vocabulary that is retained, right? That, that if God is not that involved anymore, then God probably isn't commanding us to do these things. So if we should be doing these things, it's for some other reason. My struggle is prayer, right? That if we believe that that God is not real or is not involved in the world in the same fashion anymore, which to me is not all that different from God not being real. That's why I love so much uh, Amichai Lavi's notion of God optional, right? It feels like, you know, if, if 
God is optional, then then whatever we are doing can't be only something that would make sense if God is there or and if God is is either real or paying attention, right? Um, so how do we think about prayer? And it, it, again, it, it strikes me, it feels to me like prayer can't be something that is retained in the Jewish vocabulary. And I, I, I think that you don't agree with that. So I wanted to see if we could explore that a little. Well, I don't think I disagree too much. I, so I certainly agree that the that the function of commandedness that once served people in broad numbers is serving much smaller numbers. And that um, I, I, it doesn't function in my life, really, the, the idea of commandedness at all. So I agree with you there. And I also agree, maybe surprisingly, that prayer in the vast majority of ways I see it is, is not something I... It's not something that I would be devastated to lose. The reason I think I'd challenge you a bit is because I think what's happening in the rooms that we refer to as prayer services is not actually prayer for a lot of people. Like they're not actually asking a divine being for things or like they're not doing the things we think of as praying, but they are doing something and liking it. And I I think I would define the something as one of two things. For some people... It's communal singing. They like singing with other people. And they find ways to connect with... And I'm saying this about myself, honestly, if I'm being real. Like, I really like singing with groups of people. And I find ways for the substance of what I'm singing to be meaningful for me. So I find ways for the words of the prayers that we are singing. Because typically I'm in services that sing and don't say. Um, I find ways for those to connect with me. Because at the core I want to sing. The other is the term community, which we use a lot, but people do get something out of just being in the space with other people and feeling seen and and part of something. I've argued before and I'll continue arguing that I think the number of people where that feeling is enough to connect to Jewish spaces is shrinking. I think fewer people will go to a Jewish service simply because of the community, but I do think there are those people. So I agree with you that we don't necessarily need almost all of the language that we use of prayer in terms of the structure of it. I would be content if we kept having some form of weekly or regular way to connect with other people and, and sing, because that matters to a lot of people, and or be gathered in community and, and be seen and matter. So I don't know if that's prayer, but, but like I... I think that could exist in a way that isn't prayer, which is what you said before. So, you know, then maybe it, it becomes a question of, of, of language, you know, and um, um, I mean, that was why, you know, I, I was interested in putting together that alternative playlist for the High Holidays that we did on our High Holidays Unbound website um, a few months ago, because I felt like I was trying to collect songs that I guess I would be willing to sing for the reason that you're describing. Yeah, I like to sing too. And I like to listen to music and I like to sing in a community. And I think a lot of people do. And it's really more a question of which songs we're going to sing. And part of the challenge that I think that we have with singing 
our traditional songs is number one, a lot of them are in Hebrew and people don't understand them. By the way, I sometimes think that that can be an advantage because if it, if you don't understand them and it has content, <laughs> no, in a serious way, it has content that you don't agree with. It's still a nice song, you know, mel- melodically. And, and I actually, in many ways, kind of prefer non-translated prayers than translated ones because then I don't really have to think that much about the content because the second issue that I have is that the words of many of the songs are what things that I don't connect to. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people don't connect to them. And so the question is, like, if we're going to get together to sing, how do we pick the songs that we're going to sing? Um, I, I would just throw out there that I think that something that might be able to be retained this idea of studying the past, right? Studying the the texts, even though we don't actually live them out anymore in many cases, that that, that idea of study for its own sake, because it's interesting to know what there was in the past, is something that Jews have done for a long time. And it seems like Jews are still interested in that kind of thing. Now, they may have a challenge studying certain Jewish material because it's in a language they don't understand or conceptually they don't understand it. But I think there are a lot of Jews that I've experienced and and a lot of non-Jews, you know, when looking at Jewish material that um, if you can find a way that they will understand it, they're excited. They they do want to learn and they don't want to learn because they want to then do. They want to learn because learning is a cool thing. And that's that's a Jewish sensibility that I think has permeated American society, or at least an important subset of American society in, in a big way. And it feels to me like that's something that we could really, uh, you know, that I, I, I would really, you know, I mean, Benet has talked about the study hall, the Beit Midrash, as being like the synagogue of the future, that people won't won't necessarily come together to pray, but they'll come together to study. And, um, and I think that that's an interesting possibility, right? That, that that might be, you know, sort of the version of the background music of the temple, you know, that maybe, um, you know, what we have had is, um, and, and you could argue what the current reality is or what rabbinic Judaism was really all about. But you could argue that the prayer service in the synagogue was the center and the study was kind of an important activity that ultimately served the practice, right? And you could you could imagine a future that says, we're now going to take that that means and turn it into an end, right? You know, turn it into the center of Jewish practice. So that, that feels to me like a, a possibility. I'd love that. I'd be down. I mean, I mean that I, I'm reminded I, a, a rabbi of mine a few years back was giving a spiel and said that he thinks the biggest mistake that Jewish American that American well that Jewish immigrants made when they came to America was that when they build when they built synagogues they made the sanctuary the main space and put the study hall you know to the side. Um, it's the same. It's the same point that. Benet is making, but um, just a slight, slightly different language, and um, and he was coming from a fairly traditional background. Because, by the way, what's what's funny about that is that in like the Orthodox world, like worship really isn't. I mean, it's still important, but like study is is definitely placed towards the center of the experience. So it's not as if this move that we're making. I mean, I don't. I'm not saying this because it needs to be in 
conjunction with what Orthodox Jews think. But it also happens to be a move that has been made by people that are seen as very traditional kinds of Jews. So, yeah, I I personally, some of my favorite Jewish experiences are reading works about uh, works of Jewish thought or even just, you know, fiction that touches on Jewish topics. I mean, you talked about why you valued the the listen and why you put together the listen track of our high holidays. For me, the the watch and read track. So in watch, we had a, a number of movies related to Jewish topics and read. We had some articles and and book recommendations related to the high holidays and, and Jewish topics and and some not Jewish topics, but, you know, the idea of atonement, etc. Those are powerful experiences for me. They're not just stuff I do on the side to supplement my service attendance. Like, that's actually, I, I spent my second day of Rosh Hashanah primarily doing those, and I didn't go to services. The first day I did. The, for me, I, I like both. But, like, I think if somebody wanted to do just that, great. This is where I kind of want to try to bring some of this talking full circle. You know, if we said that we predict that study will become the centerpiece, right? The the prayer, the sacrifice of the next form of Judaism, then we might really say, hey, let's invest in an organization like Svara, or let's invest in an organization like Keva, which is an organization out of the Bay Area that has study groups in people's homes, right? Or let's invest in an organization like one of these after-school Jewish enrichment centers that really focuses on study. Or let's invest in maybe day schools, you know, uh, as as a place that puts study at the very center of who they are. And then let's encourage those organizations to explore the question of how can they supplement what they're doing in ways that make the people who love what they're doing even happier. So before we close, I just wanted to, of course, state the obvious that this is only a beginning of looking at the content of what some new Judaism could become, could be built out of. We only had time on our interviews and in our discussion today to talk only about a few of the possible sensibilities, Jewish sensibilities that might be kept and non-Jewish sensibilities or extra-Jewish sensibilities that might be brought in. We are looking forward as the show goes on to continue to exploring more and more. And in fact, we're actually working on all sorts of additional projects that we'll be excited to tell our listeners about in the months ahead that are going to explore all kinds of different avenues where we can look at the raw material. Not only the this podcast is largely about the orientation towards thinking about change, but we're going to be working increasingly on all kinds of resources that are going to be about the content of uh, new models of Judaism that people will be able to play with and experiment with. We foresee lots and lots of different experiments going on. We're not here to advocate for this sensibility or that sensibility. We're here to describe what we think are the sensibilities that seem to really be the ones that have a lot of potential to be core in a new approach to living a Jewish life. And we also are wanting to just put out all the different possibilities that our listeners might be able to play around with and and uh, experiment with. And so to that end, we're excited about the next few weeks where we're going to be doing a series on Hanukkah, uh, both as a way of 
playing with a particular piece of Judaism, the holiday, in our analysis episode uh, right before Hanukkah, we're going to be brainstorming about all kinds of very practical ideas about how to uh, experience Hanukkah in this Jewish present and future. Uh, And we hope that the lead up is going to be very interesting towards getting there. And as we go on, uh, we really look forward to coming back to this basic topic over and over again. Yeah, I think that's a great closing note. So on that note, we're going to close out this episode. And as always, we want to encourage those who are listening to be in touch with us. And there's a few ways for you to do that. One is on our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Another is our website, JudaismUnbound.com where you can find show notes for this episode and all our others, along with a growing set of resources related to holidays and and other wonderful elements of contemporary Judaism. And last but not least, you can send us an email at dan at nextjewishfuture.org or lex at nextjewishfuture.org. One other piece to remind you of is that we have our Patreon page that Dan mentioned at the top of the episode, where you can make a small monthly donation in support of our work, and you can access that at www.judaism.org unbound.com slash donate. With that, this has been Judaism Unbound.